Alright, if you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 10. We are continuing to journey through the book of Luke. While you're getting there, happy Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Tomorrow is the actual day that we celebrate that in our nation. Today is his actual birthday, and that's easy for me to remember because it's also my brother's birthday. So I can remember that very, very easily. Um, if you're a guest, I do want to say a special welcome to you and just kind of roll out kind of a tradition we have here at Providence around this time of the year. Uh, and, th- and that is that we purposefully, <clears throat> we purposefully link the MLKJ weekend with Sanctity of Life Sunday, all right, which is next week. Um, and, but we purposefully link those together because MLKJ Weekend, that's historically been about the call to end the, the, the sin of racism. And then Sanctity of Life Sunday has been about the end to, to you know, the call to end uh, the sin of, of abortion. And we purposefully link those together, not just because they're close together on the calendar, but because they're close together in the heart of God. And biblically, theologically, they're tied at the hip. But this is often missed. We don't think biblically, we don't think theologically, we don't think consistently on this. Because if you look around the world, very often it seems that the people who who care about and, and and are passionate about combating abortion are not the same people that care about and are passionate about combating racism. And the people that are passionate about combating racism are often not the same people that are passionate about combating abortion. But as the people of God, the church, we must be passionate about both because God is passionate about both because they are both God issues, because they're both sanctity of life issues. They're both the imago Dei, that is the image of God issues. And so they're equally Sanctity of life issues. And so we have to wrestle with both of those. And so next week we're going to be talking about the sanctity of life and specifically about maintaining a consistent life ethic. And we'll step out of our journey through the book of Luke for one week to do that. But today, this morning, we're going to just be continuing our trek through the book of Luke, looking at chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right where we're at in our journey. Now, a lot of times I'll talk to you about things and I'll be like, there's no way I could have planned this one in, a, in advance. I did plan this one in advance. I outlined it and it, it worked out pretty close. And I thought, we'll make, that, we'll make that work. But because it's fitting. All right? And it's a parable where even if you have no background in the church, no background in Christianity or very little at all, you probably have heard this parable in some way just culturally. Very likely, maybe not everybody, but very likely. And this parable has myriads of applications. It's got racial implications because the Samaritans and the Jews were two different racial groups. It's got religious implications because the Samaritans and the Jews had two, they worshiped two different gods, it was two different religions. It has socioeconomic issues because the priest was well off, the Levite was middle class, and we don't know the condition of the one who was mugged or the socioeconomic condition of the Samaritan. But we do know the priest and the Levite, historically. 
And so the application of this text isn't, you know, uh, just just about uh, racial issues at all. So I don't want to pigeonhole it to that singularity, singularly. But it is MLKJ weekend. And so it would be appropriate for us to think about this as it relates to race in particular, while still dealing with all of it. And so we're going to make our way, if you've got your, your uh, sermon guides, we're going to look at two questions that are, that are in the text and kind of use those as meat hooks to, to, to frame this sermon around. And then I think there are two questions that this text asks of us. And we'll look at those as we make our way towards the end. So let's get started with the first little meat hook, which is a good question and answer. A good question and answer. So look at Luke chapter 10. Verse 25, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you that's on page 564. And please grab that, reach across someone, grab one. It'll make a whole lot more sense if you're looking at the text with me. And what we read is more important than what I say anyhow. This is what God breathed. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold... A lawyer, so we can stop real quick. Not going to make any lawyer jokes, so don't worry. This is not the type of lawyer we think of today. All right, this was a man who was an expert in God's law, which is another word for the Old Testament. So this is a theologian. This is a learned, a learned man. This, he knows what he's talking about. He knows the Scriptures. But he's a guy who wants to put Jesus to the test. It says, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And when you think about that, is that not a bit ridiculous? To test God on his own theology, to test God on his own doctrine, to test God on his own word. Jesus in the flesh, Jesus is God incarnate. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so it's a bit ridiculous. And so we observe this guy and we kind of think, what are you doing? That's crazy. You can't argue Bible with God. And yet we do the same thing today. Well, yeah, I know the Bible says this, God, but you don't understand my circumstance. I know the Bible says this, but it would go a whole lot better if I just go my own way. But then you look back on your track record How has it gone when you go your own way? How has it gone when you've gone God's way? But he wants to test him, all right? And so a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Good question. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? That was Jesus. And then the lawyer answers back, well, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so while this guy's, you know, a bit of a tool and he's wanting to try to test Jesus. I don't know if I should have said it that way. But he wants to test Jesus, it, 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 and so he's kind of that kind of person. But what he winds up doing here is ask, actually asking a really good question. 
and giving a really good answer that's straight out of God's word. Because the first thing he says is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. This is from the Jewish Shema. Pious Jews would recite this. Pious Jews would recite this every day, um, usually morning and night. Actually, it comes out of Deuteronomy six, and so that's a good answer. And then he comes in and he couples that with a with a, a verse out of Leviticus, particularly Leviticus chapter nineteen, verse eighteen, that says, "You shall not take vengeance." Or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And in fact, when you look at Jesus in Matthew 22, he takes these two things and he couples them together. And he says, if you carry these out, if you live these things out, that is fulfilling all the law and the prophets. That all the commandments, ten commandments, you put them all together, 613 commandments in the Old Testament are all summarized under love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So it's a good question. How do I inherit eternal life? That's a great question to be asking. And he gives a good answer. Well, here's how you do it. And so Jesus says, yeah, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so we need to understand that the law outlines a good way for us to live. All right. A way that is right. And what the lawyer said here is how we should live. I mean, it's only equitable that we would live this way towards the one who has breathed us into existence and sustains us every single day. Whether you're a believer or not, the air you breathe is His. The lungs you breathe it in are His. So it's only equitable and right to love God with all that we are. The problem is that we simply can't do this. We can never be saved by keeping the law, not because there's a problem with the law, but because there's a problem with us. We're defective. Through the fall, which is when sin entered the world, through the fall, we all now are fallen. We all now are sinners. All of us. So this isn't like, you know, groupings here. All of us. The only groupings are us and Jesus. He's perfect. We're not. All of us in the same boat. And so this is kind of part of the point that Jesus is trying to make here. He's laying down an impossible scenario for the lawyer and us to, to drive us to the fact that we need a Savior. That we can't do this. But the lawyer's still trying to figure out a way to justify himself. Because remember, he's asking, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so he recognizes, man, there's no possible way we can do this. There's none. Surely, Jesus, you can't expect us to love everyone. That would be absurd. There's got to be a line somewhere, just practically. Or then even morally, are we to love evildoers? Are we to love Gentiles? Are we to love blasphemers, the, the tyrants of Rome that are lording over us right now? Are we to love traitor tax collectors? There's got to be a line. And so we ask Jesus a clarifying question. And he gets a scandalous answer. And so that's going to be number two in our little meat hooks. A clarifying question and a scandalous answer. So look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Right, he's trying to clarify this. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Alright, and so he asks this clarifying question, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives him a scandalous answer. Alright, he's going to build to the Samaritan, but it starts off by saying, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Alright, there, there is an actual road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho and it drops. So the going down, it's a 17 mile deal, drops 3,000 feet. So if you've ever been on a trail, if you've ever been hiking and you, you've dropped 3,000 feet in elevation, you know that's a, that's legit. That's a, that's a big, you know, downhill slope. So Luke's being very literal here when he says, went down. They're going down. On this road. In ancient times, it was often called the bloody way because it was a shady road. It was not a good road. It wasn't a road you really wanted to be on. Bad stuff happened there, and it happens here. Guy gets attacked, and he gets mugged. And so verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down. Now let's go back and just read it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so you've got these guys here. These guys are those who lead in worship in the temple. And they come to the man, but they refuse to help. And the text doesn't tell us exactly why. They could have been scared of getting mugged themselves. All right? But before we jump on him and start, you know, casting our stones at him, let's, let's think about it for just a minute and put ourselves in their shoes for just a minute. Because for the priest, he gets there, he sees this guy passed out in a ditch, naked, beaten, looks dead. All right. And if he is dead and the priest goes and touches him, that's going to make the priest ceremonially unclean. Then he would have to go through the process to get clean again so that he could serve in the temple, rendering him out of work. So he has no income. He's not going to have income coming in. He's not going to be able to provide for his family. All right. And then the Levite comes along. And a Levite's kind of like a junior varsity priest, except he can never make varsity. He's locked in. He will always be JV. Financially, he's not on the same level as a priest. All right, so the Levite comes by and, and it's 17 miles. He may have actually been able to see the priest way down the road, see that he have avoided this, went to the other side of the road. What's that about? He gets up there and sees a guy and he's like, well, if the priest couldn't do it, I don't need to do this either. But what the priest and the Levite are both guilty of here, regardless of any flimsy excuse to inconvenience themselves, what they're guilty of is the sin of omission. Not doing what God would have them do. Sin is not just commission, doing things that we shouldn't do. It's also omission, not doing the things that we ought to do. And so in the flow of the story then, Jesus is laying this out and he talked about a priest and then he talked about a Levite. So the lawyer's thinking, ah, he's going to, next one he's going to lay out is a Jewish layman came by and, and he, you know, jumped in and whatnot. But that's where Jesus turns this thing and goes, scandalous because he introduces a Samaritan as the hero. Because like we refer to this parable as the parable of the good Samaritan. To a Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. It was an oxymoron. It was a contradiction of terms. 
See, Samaria had capitulated to Assyria and forsaken God for political gain and sexual pleasure. So, so when they were taken over and invaded and some were taken off into captivity, they began intermarrying with the Assyrians. Intermarrying with these non-believers all right, or, or pagan believers, not worshipers of the one true God. And so just biblically, let's take a tangent for a minute. Biblically, interracial marriage, no problems biblically. In fact, it's celebrated in a lot of places. You see multiple places and God smiles upon them. I preached a sermon almost directly on this about five years ago, this time of the year. You can go find it online. So interracial marriage is biblically no problem. I mean, Moses, who marries an African woman, um, Miriam and Aaron kind of get mad at him for that and start going off on him about that. And God strikes Miriam down with leprosy. So there's no problem with interracial marriages. And, and just to kind of, as we're talking about racism, we're talking about dialing into ourselves. I've asked this question a couple of times, and I'm just going to continue to ask this question as we examine our hearts. I talked about our vanillaness, so I'm going to talk to the bulk of us as white people for just a minute. If you're a white parent with a white daughter, and you would rather your white daughter marry a non-believing white man than a sold-out-for-Jesus-believing person of color, then I don't care what you say about racial equality. You have just proven by what your heart brings up that you are not identified primarily in Christ, but by primarily your white culture. All right. So the wall doesn't in any way outlaw interracial marriage, but it does absolutely outlaw and forbid interreligious marriages. And that is a Christian or for this time a Jew all right, is not to marry an unbeliever, is not to marry someone of a different religion. Paul reiterates this in his letter to the Corinthians. And so personally, I won't perform, never have, never will perform a wedding of someone who is a believer and someone who is not. Caused an, awkward, caused an awkward situation with a friend of mine. I won't do it, buddy. I love you, but I won't do it. Because it's what the Scripture says. Alright? We worked out and he understood. But it was awkward for a minute. That's okay. Christianity's weird. Embrace it. Now, if you're already married, I do want to make sure I say this. If you're already married and your spouse isn't a believer, that doesn't mean you, therefore, leave them. The Apostle Peter makes and Paul both make this abundantly clear. But yeah, if you're a Christian, you're not to marry someone who's not. All right? But the Samaritans in their captivity for political gain had married their captors. All right? And they had children and they developed a different religion. And so they were seen by the Jews as traitors, as sellouts, as blasphemers. And the hatred was so intense that in the Jewish Mishnah, as well as the rabbi's teaching, they said that if you ate the bread of a Samaritan, it was like eating swine. They would actually pray in the synagogue, Lord, have mercy and, and, and pour your grace and forgiveness out on us. But do not do that ever towards the Samaritans. So 
there's an intense level of hatred here. And so the lawyer sitting here waiting for this story, waiting, all right, he laid out a priest, he laid out a Levite, here comes the Jewish layman, and, and Jesus introduces a Samaritan and rocks his world. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, that's the dude in the ditch, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, all right, puts him in the saddle, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. This is worth about four weeks' pay. So take your week, take your weekly pay, multiply it by four. Technically 3.5. And he gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, like here's, here's some front money, but anything else you need, because I'm expecting you to take care of him really, really well, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so remember the context of this entire narrative here is the wall you're asking, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And when it comes out that he must love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and love his neighbor as himself, the lawyer recognizes that's impossible. This cannot be done. You've got to give me some clarification. We've got to drop this down a little bit. Sure, you can't expect me to live like that, Jesus. You've got to limit it somewhere. But Jesus refuses to limit it. Instead, again, what he's trying to do is drive home the fact that we can't live up to the holy and perfect standard of God. We cannot do that. We can't live like that. So we can't keep the law. And so Jesus laying out this you know, perfect scenario where to, to drive us to see our need of a Savior. And so from this text, number three in your notes, we've got two questions that we all must answer. And the first one is this. What are you trusting for justification? What are you trusting for justification? See, this guy's trying to justify himself. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And then he tells him this. Well, that can't possibly do that. Still trying to justify himself. He asks, well, who's my neighbor? There's got to be a limit. You've got to drop this down. There's got to be some way to attain this. And Jesus said, no, you can't attain it. That's the point I'm making. You need a Savior. That's what the wall, the Old Testament is just pointing out to us. You're sick. Thermometers tell you you're sick. They can't heal you. That's the Old Testament. And so the, this question, what are you trusting for justification? You can try to justify yourself. But there's no way it's going to happen. Because God's standard is perfection. Sinlessness. Absolute holiness. And he doesn't grade on a curve. He requires perfect love of him that then rolls out into perfect love of humanity. That's the standard. And so we cannot justify ourselves by our action because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And so if you're trusting in yourself to try to get your, not even just your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. No, no, no. Perfection or nothing. That's God. That's, that's what He demands. So if you're trying to, well, I'll just get my uh, good deeds out. No, 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 no. It's going to go bad for you. He demands perfection. And we all fall short. This is where the gospel comes in and why it's such glorious good news. Because at the cross, the Father found a way to remain just and punish sin and demand perfection and also show mercy. And so while we can't justify ourselves based upon our lives, Jesus can, based upon His life. Because Jesus did live perfectly. Jesus did live sinlessly. Right? He lived a life we all failed to. And in the Gospel, through faith, He gives that to us. He gives His perfect life. He gives His sinlessness. The Bible word is righteousness. He gives us His righteousness. And He takes our sin away. So His righteousness gets credited to our account. And then He takes the sin out of our account and puts it in His account. And He suffers and dies in our place to atone for our sins. There's a transaction that takes place. He gives us His righteousness. Takes our sin away. And so through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Father has loving grace on bad neighbors like me and you. Law-breaking sinners. And so we've got to wrestle. What are you trusting for your justification? What you do? Or what Christ has done for you? That's question number one. Question number two is not so much asking with the lawyer, who is my neighbor, but asking with Jesus, whose neighbor am I? Whose neighbor am I? Because that's what Jesus is getting after when He asked the lawyer, who do you think proved to be a neighbor? Verse 36 to the man who fell among the robbers. And so the real question is not, well, what does a person have to do, have to look like to, to qualify to be my neighbor, Jesus, so for me to love this person? That's not the question. The question is, what kind of neighbor am I going to be? Regardless. Racially regardless. Religiously regardless. Socioeconomically regardless. We've got to put it like this. We cannot define our neighbor. We can only be a neighbor. A neighbor is something that we are, not something that we have. And so we've got to stop asking ourselves, who's my neighbor? And start asking ourselves, whose neighbor am I? And what Jesus is telling us here is this is kind of like bare minimum. The guy's like, hey, I want you to lessen it, Jesus. I want a clarification. Won't you lessen it? All right, I'll lessen it. Here's bare minimum. Um, boom. Gives the story of the good Samaritan. And so the bare minimum Jesus is throwing out is that if you are indeed a follower of Jesus, it'll roll out such that you will 
Look after and love and care for those around you. Meet the needs of those around you, whether they look like you or not. Whether they believe like you or not. This is what Jesus lays out as kind of the bare minimum. And so Jesus is saying that believers are to feed the hungry. We are to shelter the weak. We are to help liberate the oppressed. This is loving your neighbor. Bare minimum for the believer. And you say, how do you say that? How do you say this bare minimum thing? Well, think about Jesus' story of separating the goats and the sheep for just a minute. Separating the nominal so-called Christians from those who have truly experienced the supernatural grace of God in their lives. How do you tell the difference? Here's what Jesus says. How you tell the difference. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so what kind of neighbor are you? Are you a neighbor like the Levite and the priest who bow primarily to the God of convenience? Well, I can't be inconvenienced for somebody. Lord, help. I can't do that. I might be late for this. I might be late for work. I might be late to get home to my family. I might be late for... I can't do that. I've got this other thing I've got to do. Praise the Lord that He didn't mind being inconvenienced for us. But He came after us at great cost. So we've got to stop hiding behind lame excuses so that we don't get inconvenienced for others. Consider others more important than yourself, right? So what kind of neighbor are you? I'm going to give you talk about a bad neighbor, I'm going to talk about a good neighbor. A bad neighbor lives like this. They have little concern for those who are wounded and dying. And whether their injuries are spiritual or physical, not really any concern. When they see someone who might be in trouble, spiritually or physically, they refuse to stop and find out what kind of help they might be able to offer. I don't want to get involved spiritually. I don't want to step on anybody's toes by trying to see if you know, they're in a dangerous place. But I don't want to talk about it. Bad neighbors, when they walk away from worship, they walk away with a heart as hard as when they came in. Bad neighbors are too selfish to interrupt what they're doing or be, again, inconvenienced by someone else's problems. Coming up with lame excuses. A bad neighbor, specifically as we're talking about today, says racism isn't a problem anymore. That's something of the past. 
And it's not that big of a deal. And people need to calm down. Which is repeating the exact same words that were said to Dr. King when he sat in a jail in Birmingham. Calm down. Calm down. I encourage you, read the letter. From, from a, from, it is a brilliant letter. And you, an atheist could not write that letter. Take God out of it and His moral grounding for equality goes away. I read it this week. Again, encourage you tomorrow, read it. But folks, we are bad neighbors when we refuse to at least listen and seek to understand the concern of 40 million people who are saying there's a problem here. We may disagree. We may come to different conclusions. But when we refuse to listen, listen, 40 million neighbors. So what kind of a neighbor are you? And here's, a, here's what good neighbors do. A good neighbor notices people in need. A good neighbor has compassion for people who suffer, regardless of the causes. A good neighbor is willing to stop and help even when it's inconvenient. A good neighbor refuses to draw artificial boundaries in order to avoid getting involved. Well, who's my neighbor? Eh, not my neighbor. A good neighbor helps strangers. A good neighbor makes costly sacrifices. Think about the Samaritan here. Puts him on his own horse, walks him to the place, gives him four weeks worth of pay to provide. For us, those costly sacrifices might be admitting we've been wrong. Or it may be admitting our parents got it horribly, sinfully wrong. A good neighbor is one who's traveling the Samaritan road, like again, let's imagine that traveling it again. And he notices, man, there's another guy over here. Let me help him. And then a couple of weeks later, he's traveling. He's like, oh, there's another one. Another one. And then next week, another one, another one, another one, another one. And he notices all this. And yes, he continues to give help to the one, but he begins trying to seek the underlying conditions that are causing so many people to fall into these situations in the first place. Starts working towards social transformation. I mean, in a way, just what do we call what Jesus is asking us to do here? You know, we call it social work. And that's not all we do. We live as, you know, gospel neighbors. But we also have to be, you know, gospel messengers. It's a both and. We talked a little bit about that last week. Word and deed. And so in short, a good neighbor. A good neighbor is someone who loves their neighbor like they love themselves. What would you do for yourself? Do for another. To the point that you actually put your happiness inside their happiness. You pursue theirs as much as your own. You help to the place where the burden actually falls on you. Like the Samaritan. Even those who hate you. Don't put limits on your neighbors. But again, how do you live like that? Like no one does that. No one lives like that. So where do you get the motivation and the power to seek to live like that? Well, let me talk about a wrong way. A wrong way is through morality. 
whether that's religious or secular. Secular morality says this, hey, you're, in, you're educated, you're enlightened, you're progressive, you're liberal, so vote for policies and, and, and give time and volunteer hours and money. All right, That's a secular morality. A religious morality for, for a religious person from the Bible or from the Torah if you're a Jew or from the Quran if you're a um, uh, Muslim says, oh, well, the, these words here tell me I need to care for those who are poor or suffering injustice or whatever it may be. So you've got morality, whether it's secular morality or religious morality. But the morality approach, what makes it wrong is that it's motivated by guilt. We're not to be motivated by guilt. Well, I've got so much and this person doesn't, so, oh man, I better give it away. That's not what we'd be motivated by. Guilt can drive you for a little while to, to, to give. It can. But it won't sustain when it gets costly. The priest and the Levite, man, what they did was almsgiving. That's part of what they did. But here where it gets costly and they may get mugged or whatever, mm-mm, not, not, not giving anymore, not, not going to help this guy. It may cost me. I may lose a bit of time from work and not be able to get paid. I may, mm-mm. Guilt will only go so far. It will help you give a little bit, serve others a little bit, but it will not sustain when it gets hard. The only way we will ever even begin to live like this and neighbor like this is only after we've been neighbored like this. And who has neighbored us like this? Christ has neighbored us like this. When we were enemies, Christ neighbored us like this. Like the gospel is brutally honest. The gospel says that, that we are all self-justifiers. We want to justify ourselves based upon our actions. And what happens a lot of times is that winds up beating us down. Like for example, I've talked to you how, um, you know, whatever it is that you if you want power or prestige or the praise of man, places of position so that people will look at you and say, wow, that guy's awesome. And if that's what, what you're after, that, that's your God. Okay, You're seeking to serve that God. But in a similar way, whatever it is that you try to set up your self-justification with, even if it's kind of below this, I'm justified in Christ, but then below that, you're trying to justify yourself by orphan care, or giving, or kindness, or this ministry, or this ministry, or this ministry, or this ministry, or whatever it is. If that's what you're trying to justify yourself by, it'll wind up enslaving you. And beating you down. Filling you ultimately with fears and discouragement over the years. Eventually, you'll be in the road dying spiritually. But the gospel says that Jesus, 
when he justifies us, like he came into the world and he came into the world and he came to our road. He came to our road and he owes us nothing. But rejection. He could reject us completely. That's what he's the creator. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. But we've been rejecting him and trying to be the masters of our own lives for years. So he owes us nothing. But when he came to our place in the road, he looked on us and he had compassion and he had pity on us. And Jesus knew that for him to care for us, all right, wouldn't just risk his life like it might for the Levite or for the priest. It would absolutely cost his life. And he did it. He put us on his saddle. He knew it would cost his life. For him to take our sins away and grant us his righteousness would cost his life. And it's only when we begin to see Jesus as our good Samaritan that we will live that way. The gospel changes us. And this flows out of it. A love for neighbor flows out because we've been neighbored. We give because we've been given to. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We go because Jesus came for us. We neighbor because Jesus neighbored us. And when we do this, the church flourishes. Historically. When the Roman Empire was collapsing, there was an emperor named Julian and he wrote a letter to one of his friends and he was saying, why is this Christianity flourishing so much? It's so insane. But what I see is they caring not only for their own people, but caring for our people. And people are coming by droves because they see a manifestation of love. Gospel neighboring leads to gospel messaging and gospel unity. Because it's all about the gospel. It's all about Christ. The church's one and only foundation. Any other foundation is of the devil. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, what are you trusting for your justification? We've got to wrestle with these questions. What are you trusting for your justification? What makes you right before the Lord? Attaining the standard of perfection. And whose neighbor are you? Not who's your neighbor. Who are you neighboring? We're going to wrestle with those in a bit of silent prayer for a minute and then I'll pray. So let's do that together. Let's pray together silently.
Jesus, thank you that you came and neighbored us. That you came and saved sinners. You came to search, to seek, and to save the lost. You came after us. And Father, through that, for those of us who claim the name of Christ, that should motivate us to neighbor others, whoever they are. Father, forbid that it be driven by guilt. If we are ever going to get to the place that you want us to get to as it relates to race relations, it cannot be driven by guilt. but driven by a recognition of your supremacy, who you are, how you in. Placed in every single human, your image. Making us absolutely all equal. And so, Father, we are all tainted with sin. And deep in the recesses of our hearts, even those of us who might say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Yes, we do. Would you help us to see it? And would you help us to fight it? And would you forgive us? And Father, for those of us in this room who might think, man, I'm doing pretty good with this. I, I get it, but man, I hope everybody else in here will start being like me and not be racist and all that stuff. Well, Father, would you convict us of our self-righteous, superiority, pharisaical complex for looking down on someone else? We are all broken. And Father, thank you that there's grace for us bad neighbors. There's grace, plenteous grace. And so give us Jesus. As one guy said, we're all just a bunch of different looking people in need of the same looking cross. Give us Jesus. And help us to see that we're all equal at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.